0: Welcome to Mintel Little Conversation, real conversations with actionable insights into what consumers want and why. My name is Alicia Young, and I'm Associate Director of Consumer Trends for the Asia-Pacific region, and I'm based in Sydney. Over the past few years, we've seen the explosion of vegan and plant-based claims across not just food and drink, but every FMCG category: shampoo, cosmetics, dishwashing liquid. Um, I saw laundry softener, just you know, to name a few of the ones that I found in Mintel's global new products database that had plant-based claims on pack. So we're not just looking at you know a fruit and veg, and then maybe some some plant-based burgers these days. Of course, alternative protein or plant-based meat is absolutely no exception to that as well, right? It's hard to miss the frenzy of innovation that we've seen from brands like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat as they try to capture the, the look and the feel and the taste of animal-based products. However, news reports of late have been calling out how we've reached peak veganism. While well, some plant-based brands have actually been taken off the shelves and companies have folded. So what does this mean for the alternative protein space? What are consumers actually looking for here? And do opportunities still exist for meat alternatives? Today, I'm joined by three experts on this topic to give me some answers to all this, and I am sure much, much more. We've got Megan Stanton, Associate Director of Mintel Global Food and Drink. Alice Kilkington, uh, Mintel's Senior Food and Drink Analyst based in the UK. And we've got a special guest today as well, Dr. Simon Easem, who's Executive Director of Food Frontier in Australia. Before we kick off, would you guys mind just introducing yourselves and giving me a little context on your roles?
1: Sure. How about if I go first? Uh, my name's Megan Stanton. I'm an Associate Director for Food and Drink uh, at Mintel. I'm also, I have the remit to be Mintel's Global Protein Analyst. So that is looking at both animal and for today's purposes plant-based or an alternate protein as well. I've been at Mintel for about five years and I'm really looking forward to our
2: chat. Hi, I'm Alice Pilkington. I am a senior global food and drink analyst at Mintel. Um, I previously worked on the UK team um, and I was uh, writing reports on the UK food and drink industry, um, hence my uh, knowledge of this area in the UK in particular. Um, And day-to-day I write um, Consumer Insights for our platform and also regularly take part in uh, client presentations.
3: And I'm Simon Eason. I'm the Executive Director for Food Frontier. Food Frontier is an independent think tank, totally philanthropically funded, um, focusing on Australia and New Zealand, and the opportunities for alternative proteins to help eradicate or deal with a number of issues, whether those issues are to do with health, nutrition, and diet-related illness and disease, or climate change, or zoonotic disease, and and potential uh, transfers of disease from animal industry to humans, and food poverty. So we take uh, a lot of our own independent research, research from others, and a lot of data insights to publish thought leadership around the possibilities for alternative proteins to meet the requirements of feeding the world with a growing population heading towards 10 billion people by 2050.
0: Just that that easy remit, right? Just that cheeky question. Uh, so we're going to have, I think, a quite robust discussion then in that case, because we've got a lot of different perspectives coming onto this one. Um, I know you all have a lot to say on the topic, so let's get straight into it. I mentioned that we've seen a few big name meat alternatives start to struggle a little bit. Uh, we've seen losing SKUs or perhaps even pulling off shelves entirely. Is this an indication of? I know, Alice, you've seen this in the news, and perhaps even been on the news discussing this yourself. Um, peak veganism.
2: I think it's really important to start this conversation by debunking this myth about peak veganism. This was a this was a kind of uh, quote that was seen a lot in the UK media recently. Um, only two or three percent of the population is vegan the majority of consumers who are driving this trend are actually flexitarian so if we talk about the uk market in particular we've got 37 percent of people are saying that they now limit or reduce the amount of bread meat and poultry that they eat and it's just really important that not everyone has gone vegan it's just that these products are traditionally associated with those who have taken that dietary next step, but it's the flexitarians that are um, by far the most important consumers in this space.
3: Um, We hear this a lot. Um, Vegan and veganism is a is a is a very loaded word. Um, It has a number of connotations and meanings outside of just diet, and particularly to do with certain moral and ideological positions about the treatment of animals. So it's not a very helpful uh, term. But, of course, it feeds into the sort of clickbait media commentary um, around what they want to you know, tell stories about in terms of whether this has been an attempt to, to turn people, more people into vegans and it's failed, which, which absolutely it hasn't been. So, we're, we're not worried about that. Um, we're much more focused on um, what alternative proteins offer to the consumer, who might be consuming those alternative proteins, what their motivations for being conscious consumers are and why they're looking to change their diet from their normal traditional diets and what that then addressable market is for the manufacturers and the way in which they Supply that market, both in terms of the product with the product quality and so on, but also the communication of what they're trying to provide for those different types of consumers. And I'm sure we'll get more into that, but we really don't focus on, you know, the word vegan and the use of the word vegan. It will remain a very small niche uh, group who are plant based eaters, but you know, we're not looking to grow that group. Um, we're really looking at the reducitarians and flexitarians as the potential future consumers of a lot of these alternative proteins.
1: On that sort of peak veganism, I, I would dare to suggest that it's the media themselves that have actually created the term. Uh, I'm not sure those that are actually in the alternate protein industry would refer to that or even suggest uh, that that's the target group of consumers that they're looking to address. I guess around your point, though, there has been a bit of a pullback on uh, some of the sales figures that we've seen uh, to do with plant-based meat. We have seen uh, some amalgamations of brands uh, and some quite serious uh, profit warnings from some of these larger brands. And I guess there really is a little bit of a, a um, kind of a rethinking from consumers Because the original products that came onto the market, let's face it, some of those were not of a great quality, uh, and this has kind of led some consumers to uh, perhaps rethink whether some of these products coming on the shelf are for them and whether they would go back again uh, for another purchase choice. And so I guess that's kind of where we sit at this point just to start our jumping off uh, for the rest of the discussion I'm sure we'll get into.
2: Yeah, I I completely agree with Megan. We saw this astronomical growth here in the UK of these products. Um, A lot of really big players entering the market as well as these quite niche, um, really small startup brands. And what we found from our data is that consumers are now finding the meat-free aisle in the supermarket really overwhelming. There are just too many brands offering too many um, different angles on this meat-free um, proposition. Um, and while during COVID, the market still was able to do really well, we were all um, spending much more time at home. People were maybe a little bit more willing on trying, to, uh, try, taking a risk on these products. Um, but unfortunately, these brands weren't able to... Um, Kind of establish their own consumer loyalty. So when the cost of living crisis hit in kind of late 2021, early 2022 in the UK, these products were the first ones that people were looking on their shopping list and thinking, you know what, I I can cut back on that. So the the lack of established consumer loyalty really affected these brands, um, and that's why we've seen. Some uh, brands such as Meatless Farm have had a lot of problems here in the UK. Nestle have withdrawn their Garden Gourmet line. So, um, yeah, there's definitely a rationalization of the market taking place in the UK.
3: uh, And it's a a double-edged sword, isn't it, Alice? Because um, on the one hand, the sector in which the plant-based meat companies are playing into is a highly commoditized sector. None of us go into the supermarket looking for a particular brand of minced beef. You know, you're looking to buy minced beef. It doesn't matter whether it's the supermarket's own brand. It might have a branding of the sort of farm corporation or cooperative it's come from, Um, but we don't go in there looking for X brand of ground beef. Likewise, we don't go in looking for X brand of, of chicken thighs or whatever, even though we might if we're trying to choose organic versus something else, but it's very limited. It's a commoditized product. On the other hand, um, one of the ways in which we're increasing awareness has been through that kind of brand positioning. So, of course, the big early players in the US were Beyond Meat and Impossible. And Peter McGuinness, the CEO of Impossible, will tell you that from their research, 85% of Americans have never even heard of Impossible Foods. So we, we need some of the brands to be successful because they are cutting through in getting audience awareness of product particularly when it's a good quality product so the association and the partnerships between companies like impossible with burger king in america and with beyond meat in other markets has been really important so on the one hand we need brand awareness but on the other hand it is a highly commoditized space and you're absolutely right Alice. there's far too many brands competing with each other and it becomes very very confusing and in australia for example you have suppliers who have one brand, and they their brand is recognisable in the service sector, but they brand their product with a different label when it goes into one of the supermarket chains, and a completely different label when it goes into a different supermarket chain. Even more confusing for the consumer.
2: And I just just another point to note that these products, especially within the cost of living crisis, they are on a par or even more expensive than their meat equivalents. So if people were looking to these products to replace their meat and they're struggling a little bit on the financial side, they, these aren't going to be the products that people turn to um, in in times of need. They are probably going to stick with um, their, a processed meat alternative or um, just make a meat-free meal using pulses and vegetables and things like that? I
3: mean, I mean, Alice, you're jumping straight into the really heart of this stuff, aren't you? Because what we know from the retail sector in Australia and New Zealand is all of the protein sectors have suffered because of the financial circumstances of families doing it tough. Um, so people are buying less beef and buying more chicken. For the first time in decades, chicken is now outselling beef in America as the prime source of animal protein. People are making decisions around the quality of the cuts. So they're shifting from whole cuts of beef down to things like ground beef. They're shifting from chicken breast down to cheap chicken wings and chicken drumsticks. So we've seen it across all sectors. So I don't think, you know, there's nothing specific about plant-based meat and people saying, well, I won't buy plant-based meat at a premium. But you are touching on the really crucial issue about consumption and that is control of pricing. And there's a number of significant things that have, that have happened in the plant-based meat sector um, deliberately and accidentally that are creating problems where, it's, where we can't really judge what the potential of the sector is just by looking at consumer behavior. I mean, if I, I'll briefly try and mention the three things around pricing. The first that's really, really important, and Europe, you'll, you'll be able to tell us more about this, Alice. Europe is the most heavily subsidized meat industry in the world. So the true price of meat compared to plant-based meat is is you know b- beyond compare. I mean, in America we have some data for that shows that with the amount of subsidy that goes into the American beef industry, a you know, a Big Mac or a quarter pounder in America should really cost about thirteen dollars, not four dollars forty nine. And so the real price of that product is three times what the consumer is paying. So the consumer is already through their taxes paying for the subsidies that go into the animal industry in America and Europe. So that's the first thing. That's why it seems so expensive. The second thing is, obviously, at early startups, the materials, the raw materials, the fractionation processes required to get at the protein isolates to create the quality product you need are expensive. They require investment, and often that's government-level investment. There are very few facilities available to do that, and if you look at one of the new protein isolates that's being commonly used in plant-based meats, such as pea protein. There are very few places in the world that produce a quantity of yellow pea to produce the protein isolate for pea protein. So everybody's having to import that product, and it's at an expense, which is much more so than importing the basic grain or the basic legume. So their raw raw, mater- raw materials are more expensive. And again, if government invested in the fractionation facilities and incentivized farmers – then again, you'd get more of a level playing field. But the third and most important thing that's affecting consumer behavior is the retailers themselves. So the retailers are fundamentally businesses. Now, the fact they sell grocery products and and more, because obviously in Tesco's and so on in in the UK, they're selling clothes, they're selling baby products, they're selling barbecue, everything, you know, um, uh, cleaning products. It's not just about food. They want to maximize margin for the products they sell but whilst at the same time giving a distribution of products so that the customer still wants to come in there because they can do all their shopping in the one place. So with something like animal meat, animal meat is a very, very high volume, high revenue product. So they can charge less margin on that product and still make enormous amounts of profit. Because the plant-based meat sector is still very small, We're talking, you know, a thousandth perhaps of the size of the animal meat sector in terms of sales. They have to put a higher margin on their product in order to get profit to make it worthwhile giving it floor space. Otherwise, they'd be better off selling frozen chips or frozen peas or selling other products that give them the revenue and the margin. So you'll find that the retailers are probably putting between 40 and 50% margin on plant based meats. So the consumer is not seeing a level playing field and able to make uh, a choice based upon the reality of pricing. Now, look at what's happening in Germany. Lidl have made a commitment that their own brand plant-based meats and their own brand animal meats will be priced at exactly the same price point. So, you take away the price issue from the consumer.
0: It's a massive issue, right? Like, And it's a massive barrier to consumers wanting to try these things as well. It's a massive barrier to, to giving them a go in the first place. If they can't afford like, to look at two, two products, the ground beef they would have every day and are happily having, and this plant based ground beef, potentially three times the price, why would they try something they're not sure about? So I just want to bring it back to, you know, we said that consumers are still keen to, to engage with these flexitarian or reducitarian diets, which I quite like. Why do you think, when we think about, you know, we've mentioned price as a massive barrier already, why do you think some of these meat alternative brands? aren't connecting with consumers on the shelf? Um, are there any other reasons, product level, that you know, you've know you identified?
1: Well, I'm sure we're going to be able to, to have a conversation around this. How about if I kick off with just some things and then others can can jump in with their, their thoughts as well? We know from Intel data that the main reason people began kind of engaging with plant-based or alternate proteins is because of health. Uh, We have conscious consumers 100%, but we also know consumers are looking for better options to provide themselves with a healthier diet. And some of the concerns that we've seen with these products are that consumers saw long ingredient lists, perhaps with some of the ingredients that they didn't recognise. Many consumers maybe had in their mind that a plant-based alternative would actually come from plants. So, of course, soy or pea protein that Simon already mentions, 100% they're plants, they're grown, they're crops. Um, But maybe consumers were thinking that it would be more whole plants than protein isolates. Now, consumers don't have the technical knowledge of how to put these types of things together, and I believe that that one of the barriers for consumers is they just don't recognise some of the ingredients that are on the pack, and many actually felt a little duped that some of these products maybe didn't deliver on the health expectations that they originally had uh, when they thought what plant-based alternatives would offer them. So I'm sure there's probably other things that people want to mention, but I'll kick off with just that one first.
3: I think that's, uh, you know, you, you've hit the nail on the head, Megan. Um, the, what we do know is it's a very small percentage of Consumers of food and beverages who are conscious consumers, that term that Megan used, who actually consciously think about the decisions they make around the food. But what we do know is more than 50% of those conscious consumers, their priority in making those choices is health. But they don't necessarily understand what is the positive health-related choice. They understand what it is they're trying to not do. So they want to eat less product with saturated fat, for example. Uh, They're told to eat less red meat. They're told they need more fiber. Now, the manufacturers in general have been very poor in translating that knowledge and understanding into the way in which they package and market their product. And so you're leaving it up to the consumer, assuming a level of knowledge and education in the consumer that they can work it out for themselves. And as Megan rightly said, a lot of them are looking at these products and saying, this doesn't, to me, look like food. When you look at the list of ingredients on the back, um, this, is a, this is a heavily processed product. And they have an idea that a healthy product should be a cleaner product with less ingredients. Now, most of the manufacturers are working very hard in this space. They're working to cut down the number of ingredients to less than 10, for example, which puts them well ahead of the majority of processed products we buy in our shopping baskets um, every week, including bread, which is a heavily processed product, and yet we associate you know, whole grain bread with extra fiber and extra protein has been as a healthy product, but it's an ultra-processed product. So there's a lot we need to do around consumer education and a lot the manufacturers need to do around around communicating the nutritional benefits of their products on the packaging.
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree, Simon. Um, I, I, I think the health profile of these products has improved over the years, but our data shows that um, a lot of consumers still find these products still too processed. Um, and if a product is claiming to mimic the texture and taste of meat, I think automatically that rings a lot of alarm bells with consumers. And it's slightly Frankenstein. If, if for, Well, that doesn't happen naturally, <laughs> does it? For, for, for want of a better word, slightly Frankenstein. Um, I, I'm not sure what the case is. Um, uh, over in the, uh, Australia, but definitely in recent months, we are having multiple media stories around ultra processed foods. So there are some health, high profile health influencers such as Chris Van Tulliken. He's come out with a book called Ultra Processed People. There's, uh, Tim Spector, who is quite a controversial figure in, in himself. You either love him or you hate him. Um, but there is a lot of, um, coverage at the moment on ultra processed foods and the machinery, the way these products are made, there is not enough transparency and consumers are wanting more transparency. If they're going to invest in this product, they want to know that it's not created in some weird factory with 400 different ingredients. So I think that that is a, that is a definitely a quite a big barrier for some consumers, especially older consumers.
3: And you're absolutely right, Alice. And and the, the manufacturers are hoisted on their own petard in the sense that, in trying to create or recreate the taste, the texture, and the experience of meat, what are they doing? They're adding fats. They're adding fats because that's what gives us the mouthfeel and that's what enables them to produce that similar texture. Now, admittedly, they're trying to use alternative oils and omega-3 oils rather than saturated fats, for example. But in some cases, they're even using you know, precision fermented fats that replicate those saturated fats. So, you know, the consumers is bound to get confused. Um, we're suddenly seeing a fat profile of this content, which is the thing we're trying to avoid. I think the other thing that's important here is... We've assumed that the consumer will make a decision, eat less red meat, and therefore just go and eat any kind of plant-based meat. And the consumer hasn't really been educated as to making the proper comparison. What is the nutritional profile of a plant-based burger versus an animal meat burger? What is the nutritional profile of a plant-based sausage versus an animal meat sausage? Because nutritionally, most of the plant-based products come up very well. But somebody who's looking to cut down on the amount of, say, whole cut red meat, then looks at a plant-based burger and says, "I don't see this as more nutritionally valuable." I mean, we 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 don't talk about healthy foods; we talk about healthy diets, and they don't see it as contributing to a particularly healthy diet. So that is that is a fundamental problem.
0: So we spoke about price as being you know a strong barrier, especially as we are you know living through this this cost of living crisis. Do you think that as we come out of this, this moment um, the people will return to these meat alternatives or do you think perhaps that those, those habits have stuck?
2: So when we had the stories a few months ago about Meatless Farm and Garden Gourmet, the media seemed to, um, they seemed to be very interested in, A, have we reached peak veganism, and B, is this the end of the meat alternatives market? And it's certainly not the case. We fully expect that the market is, certainly in the UK, is going to return to growth, but it's just not going to be able to maintain that same momentum that it had, say, pre-COVID because the, the landscape's changed. We've all been through a lot. Um, and another thing to really consider is that during COVID, a lot of consumers grew in cooking confidence. We saw an increase um, in cooking from scratch um, simply as a way to pass the time. As uh, given that we were spending so much time at home and that knowledge will not be unlearned. So if people have turned to creating meat free meals at home using chickpeas, vegetables and things like that during the cost of living crisis, once the cost of living crisis eases, the meat substitute products are going to have to work even harder to prove their value to consumers who now are a little, a little bit more confident in cooking a meat free meal.
0: Such a good point. A tin of chickpeas is a lot cheaper than both meat
1: and alternative meats, isn't it? Sorry, Megan? Yeah, I was going to say, we we still have the same issues that we were faced with pre-COVID. So we still have, as Simon mentioned, we've still got to feed this massive population Uh, by the year 2050, 10 billion people by 2050, We don't have enough meat to satisfy the requirements of these huge populations. We also don't have enough land to grow the plants, to feed the animals, to then provide us with the meat. We still have issues around health. The amount of red meat people are eating is not good for their health, particularly in Western uh, cultures. And then we still are faced with the same environmental conditions, if not even more severe, than we saw pre-COVID. Um, so, these issues haven't gone away. So, the alternative proteins are still definitely one of the options that will be available for consumers going forward. I guess what we need to think a little more clearly is taking into consideration these types of things that Alice mentioned Maybe it is that some of these products won't try to replicate the taste and texture of red meat, but they will be more vegetable forward using those alternate proteins like pea protein, like soy isolates and some of the newer things like mushrooms that are coming through that resonate more strongly with consumers as being something they can recognise as an ingredient uh, that provides that taste that they're looking for. And hopefully, some of these uh, initiatives, like we, like Simon mentioned for little in Germany, will catch on with retailers, and they will actually try and uh, progress some of these alternatives to give consumers real choice. Um, because let's face it, we're we're not in a place where the environment is getting any better than it was before. So there's it's definitely not an end. I would just say it's a reinvigoration perhaps, uh, of where we were before. Definitely changes needing to be made, um, but not an end, just a new beginning.
3: Look, I think ultimately the big picture, when it comes to the sorts of things Megan just talked about in terms of feeding a grown population, that we should focus on is the price of protein. Is it an efficient way to supply a grown population with their daily protein requirements? by growing crops, monoculture crops, to feed to animals to then get at the end result, you know, one gram of protein that has cost X amount in terms of the inputs, the supply chain, the detriment to the climate, et cetera, et cetera. What we, we can do is, and some organisations, research organisations, particularly in the UK, at Oxford University, the Martin Institute and others, have done that kind of analysis of what is the cost of protein. But I'll give you one example. There's a company in Australia called Eighth Day Foods, They um, fractionate and ferment lupin seeds, which are indigestible by human beings, but they're one of the richest sources of all nine essential amino acids in a complete protein profile in the in the plant world. Now we feed lupins to pigs as animal feed, but if you convert those lupins into protein isolates to create protein for human beings in plant based meat, you can feed a human being, with their daily protein requirements for 35 cents or 22 cents US wow. or about 18p per day UK. So as a cost of providing the daily requirement of protein for human beings on the planet, um, plant protein provides a much cheaper source of getting that protein to people. So that's really what I'm to look at. Now, the only way you're going to affect consumer choice and change is if you start to give the real price of food. That's going to come through regulation and pressure from governments to require retailers to actually factor in supply chain, greenhouse gas emissions, costs to the environment to give the real price of food. Now, unfortunately, that's going to mean some quite massive inflation in some of our food prices, but it will give consumers Mm -hmm. the ability to make a choice between what actually is the most cost-effective way of getting my protein out of, out of my diet.
0: So, we've we've spoken a bit about the different vegetable content that people are bringing into their diets. Now Alice, you mentioned you're cooking with vegetables and cooking with, with chickpeas and such. Um, and of course, we've seen that plant-based is definitely a growing movement where perhaps veganism is, is well, it's not dying. It's, it's very much alive. Do you think there's an unlocked opportunity for, for plant-based meats.
3: Absolutely. I mean, we're really at the beginning of a journey with things like plant-based meats. Um, three things. The quality needs to improve and it is. So you've got to have the very best product out there. You've then got to increase consumer awareness. And it's all the things we've talked about, awareness of the nutritional profile, awareness of what the benefits might be towards a healthy diet, etc. And then you've got to increase availability um, because although Alice has reported on the almost, and, and the UK has really led this space because 30 years ago when corn was first introduced to the UK market, now look at how much corn fills the shelves in supermarkets in the UK. But in other areas, particularly in the US, particularly in Australia, consumer awareness of these products is still very, very low. Um, so if you manage managed to, to deal with those three, the potential is huge. We have evidence to suggest, and, and food service has an important part here. If people go out into restaurants, and we're seeing a growth area, it's the only area of food and beverage consumption during the pandemic and post-pandemic where um, revenue has grown is in food service. So Australians like to go out to eat. And and what they're doing is they're seeing more and more plant-based options on menus, And it's increasing, particularly in the hotel sector and others. And that's happening in the UK as well with some of the hotel chains who are putting more plant-based meat on their menus. The consumer tastes something, they like it, and then go, what is that? Where can I get it? How can I get it? At the moment, there's quite two different channels. We've seen an interesting merger this week in Australia between a company called Fen Foods and a company called All G. And All-G has produced products largely for the service sector, although it's available through their Love Buds product, which is burgers and sausages and so on, in some of the smaller retail outlets. Whereas Veef, which is a food product, is largely available through the supermarkets. There's been a merger of those two. To create a great deal of operational efficiency around manufacture, but also supply chain and distribution to get those products, the good quality products from the two companies into those two sectors of the market, the service sector and the retail sector. So it's if you get those three things right, if the quality is there, if the consumer awareness is there, and then the availability is there, that they can buy it, taste it, eat it, get, eat it in their um, favorite QSRs at quick service restaurants then the potential is huge. And we have all of the data to show that that potential is huge. There is a ready market out there. So we've been through that hype curve and there's been a bit of a hiccup and we're down in the trough. A lot of that due to a lot of the economic conditions that people have faced. But we're on the upside again afterwards. So there's massive potential for plus mid still to come over the next decade.
0: So right. Like how do we, how do we tip it into that mainstreaming? You know, we, we, we've, got, we've got the early adopters. Now how do we kind of kick it up and, and, and take it to that next level?
2: Obviously, there is still. I completely agree with Simon. There is still such a big potential for this market um, with technological advances and everything else that's going on. For me, what's really exciting and really interesting, and I'm just so curious to see how it's going to play out, is that in the UK um, there seems to be almost a kind of vegetable renaissance. So, at the beginning of the year, Tesco, which was the the really the pioneer um retailer for plant-based um with their they were the first one to have an own label range in back in 2018 tesco announced that they were changing their plant-based um strategy to be more veg forward and at the same time we're seeing a reinvigoration of vegetarian ranges so recently both tesco and mns have launched vegetarian um, meals, and if they are trying to appeal to flexitarians, the fact that these products don't contain meat is probably the most important selling factor. If they contain cheese or any elements of dairy, that consumers think ah, that that's definitely going to give me flavour. That's going to be quite reassuring for people who are trying to reduce their meat content, but not and are not necessarily looking for a fully uh, vegan or plant-based um, proposition. At the same time, we're also seeing um, a reinvigoration or a lot of excitement and um, exciting innovation around chickpeas and legumes, which are my personal passion product project. Sadly, um, and they, these products were these beans and things like that. They were. Seen often as the reserve of kind of hemp-wearing hippies, and and the tin the tin bean oil would really just was quite a depressing space to be. And suddenly, we're seeing innovation across a range of categories: snacks, breakfast cereals, using chickpeas and legumes. And the fact that these products also have a role in nitrogen fixing in the soil means that products going forward, I think, products that meat substitute products or meat alternatives that use chickpeas could also have a new fresh angle on su- sustainability. You're not just talking about carbon footprint. You're actually moving the conversation on to something else and talking about how these products actually are great for the environment because they fix the nitrogen in the soil. So that's what I personally am really excited about going forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Also, the forward kind of angle is something that, that's really exciting for me as well. One of the things that I've been getting a lot of questions from our Mintel clients about, though, is hybrids. So people say, okay, well, if we're going to go down this veg forward angle, what about we give consumers meat products, but we add some vegetables to try and balance this kind of uh, let's help consumers eat more plants angle? And I'm going to be bold here and say that I just don't think that this is going to work because consumers don't eat like that. When they say they want to reduce their meat, it doesn't mean let's look at the plate and reduce just a tiny little bit of meat, but I want to buy a product where the meat and the vegetables are together. Um, We saw initially when plant-based eating came into play around about 2018, Uh, supermarkets did have these types of hybrid products that might have been 60% um, minced beef and 40% vegetables um, and they just didn't work because consumers can quite easily reduce the portion of meat that's on their plate and add more vegetables. They can perhaps have a meatless Monday where maybe they just take one of their meals of meat off the plate and replace that with something like Alice said that's maybe a fantastic vegetarian lasagna. It might have a bit of cheese, but it doesn't have any meat. So the who is this consumer that we're trying to target with these hybrid products? Because for me, they don't re, we don't eat as consumers in that way. Okay, yes. Perhaps the one option could be parents that are trying to hide some vegetables um, in meat products like chicken nuggets, let's say, that have vegetables. We've seen a number of big brands launch those types of products. Uh, but let's face it, if you're feeding your children chicken nuggets, then you're desperately trying to get them to eat something. And so hiding vegetables in there is probably one of the, the, the ways that you can go as a parent. I don't think there's many. Because that's the only,
0: the only reason I can think to hide vegetables anywhere is, is for that. I don't need to hide them from myself.
1: <laughs> so otherwise, I, I really think uh, at Mintel with our wealth of consumer data that we have, we, we just don't see consumers behaving in a way that would make a hybrid product um, a successful launch for brands when we already have some brands that are that are really addressing some of those concerns around taste and texture and even price. I know V2 Foods here in Australia is already uh, for some brands on a great parity um, for for beef mints. Um, so why would you why would you go down that track when you can literally just add more vegetables to the plate or reduce a meal that you're already having? So for anyone out there that's asked me that question, how a hybrid's going to go, uh, my personal opinion is not well. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else wants to jump in on that.
3: Well, I mean, I love Alice's passion for legumes and beans and pulses. Um, maybe we'll have a problem with the enteric fermentation of the UK population if they start eating more beans. Um Uh, and that'll add add to our climate change issues. But let let me be slightly provocative and slightly um, cynical at the moment. 75 to 85%, depending on what research you look at, of food consumers are not interested. They are not conscious consumers. They are not sitting there watching MasterChef and working out how they can cook up the most fantastic vegetable meals. They are eating in you know, fast food outlets, they're eating pizzas, they're eating frozen stuff out of the fridge, they're looking for cheap alternatives to feed the family, or they just believe it to be a part of their, you know, masculinity or whatever to chuck down, you know, burgers and beer and chips. So what's been really interesting in the um, plant-based meat sector, both in the US and Australia, is Impossible Foods in the US and All G in Australia, which is Love Butts, have directly gone to the most established meat-consuming places they can find, such as at a big meat market festival, and offered people to try their plant-based burgers. In fact, G with their Love Buds Burger, did a fantastic event in Australia. They all wore these T-shirts saying, no meat, no shit, and they gave people free burgers and allowed them completely anonymous feedback as to what they thought. And the overwhelming response was they were bloody good and I'd, I'd have those again. So Impossible have done the same. They've gone to the big sports events. They've gone to Madison Square Gardens. They've gone to the US Open Tennis. Uh, they've gone to those. They're putting their food products into kiosks. They're letting people taste it and make their own decisions. So you're not trying to say to people, oh, stop eating this eat more vegetables eat more legumes they're saying eat what you like but you now have an alternative that tastes better than the original that you were eating and possibly cheaper and certainly you know is something that you're going to feel good about the fact that it's probably got a better nutritional profile so for the 75 to 80% where we're trying to get them to consume some of this you've got to play them in there in play with them in their own backyard and their own backyard is they're going to carry on with their habits and their their dietary patterns, but just provide them with something really tasty and really attractive for them to eat.
0: So winning over those tough crowds then at the the sporting grounds and the meat markets. But that's it. It comes down to you have got to prove that it's a a viable solution, right? And a tasty solution.
3: And and that's where I think most of these, you know, we talk about the decline. I think a lot of startups got into this from an R&D and a technological background, a science background, and then really found out very quickly, food is really difficult the food industry is a really tough place to work it's very cutthroat the margins are small the the regulation around safety health etc makes huge imposts on what you do the investment in the infrastructure is massive distribution networks marketing it's massive and so a lot of naturally pulled out because they thought oh this isn't the place to make a quick buck with a new company so i think when the big uh, conglomerates and the big inter- multinationals pick up on this, and we we see that with Simplot in Australia, which owns the Birdseye brand, they're going very successfully in the freezer space in Australia. So when are those some some of those big companies that have already got sorted out the R and D function, the distribution function, the infrastructure they need for production, then you you can start to see the economies of scale that needed. But absolutely, it's it's totally understandable why we've seen a lot of these early players disappear. We need fewer brands we need better quality uh, and then we need better awareness.
1: One
0: final question for you all, which I think should wrap up the opportunities for brands quite nicely and hopefully do my job of wrapping up this episode. If you could launch a new plant-based product tomorrow, what would it look like? Where do you see the most potential? I don't want to answer for you, Alice, and say chickpeas,
1: but can we go further than that perhaps? (laughs) From my perspective... I think that there's some really exciting work that's been done with some of the the more natural-facing ingredients. Uh, I think some of the work that's been done with mushrooms is really exciting. And I think even perhaps... t Socks favourite. Yep. Even um, some of the combinations of ingredients so I've done a bit of reading on lupins as well. And if we can actually solve that problem of the oxidation and some of the taste barriers with lupins uh, and then combine it with mushrooms, which actually has its own already naturally occurring umami, that's something that we could actually get uh, the nutritional component sorted the taste components sorted, and also potentially some of the textural components sorted. So if we can tick some of the boxes on the barriers that we have for consumers around texture, around taste, and around nutrition with a product uh, that's fit for purpose, that's one that I think consumers would be um, well ready to receive.
3: I wouldn't have any hesitation to go into the plant-based seafood market. Um, I think starting out with plant-based meat and trying to replicate whole cuts of meat has been extremely difficult. And a lot of people who've tried plant-based meats are setting aside the crumble products, setting aside, you know, meatballs and and burgers and sausages. (laughs) When you've tried some of those chicken chunks or beef chunks or beef strips because you want to use them in your own cooking for making stews and casseroles and pies and curries, they've been disappointing. Texturally, seafood is much easier to reproduce, and you're seeing some great early successes. If you look at the company Revo, the Austrian Austrian German company, um, they are now selling in European markets um, 3D printed plant based salmon, looking in whole cutlets of meat. So the seafood market is is not only a huge potential market because of the volumes of seafood that are being eaten. But we have enormous ecological problems with fish farming and with our degradation of our oceans. So again, there's probably more incentive, more government possibility in terms of regulation and helping that industry. But I actually think getting to the taste profile and texture profile of the product is probably quicker and easier with some seafood, particularly when you're off, you know, you know, a, you know a crumbed scampi or a tempura prawn because it's in a batter or it's in something else, it's actually easy to mask a lot of those things which reveal the shortcomings of a chicken chunk or a beef chunk. There's a company called Boldly Foods, for example. that gives you
0: the texture, yeah, doesn't it? They're
3: doing a fantastic job around producing things like, um, you know, plant-based calamari and plant-based sushi sushi products. So I would I wouldn't hesitate to go into plant-based seafood
2: absolutely fascinating um yeah i i I would probably um yes probably err on the side of my beloved um chickpeas and things like that but just from a if we're thinking about nutritional health claims um on pack um if products if plant-based products go above and beyond the nutritional credentials that are traditionally associated with meat So not only calling out that they are a source of protein and a source of B12, but if they look to claims such as high fiber, that is going to be able to tap into the growing interest around gut health, um, as well as plant variety. So definitely in the UK, we've got some health influencers um, advocating the 30 plants a week message. So if products can call out on pack that they contain three or four servings of vegetables, that, that would be a really powerful and appealing um, proposition for consumers.
3: One very quick point to add to Alice's point there. The only sector in the retail market in Australia that has grown during COVID and the pandemic is in those that, that whole aisle of sports and health foods. So, there is a huge demand for people who want, you know, the protein junkies, who want the ultra-high protein content and clean protein. So, Alice is absolutely right. There is a whole market there that have proven to be very resistant to economic pressures um, that is very buoyant. It's the only growth market in the retail sector, in the big supermarkets in Australia. It's so if you if you really produce a product that's that's really focused on nutrition what whatever it is it might not be a meat substitute it might be these protein balls and protein shakes or whatever they are using plant proteins there's a big market for that and it's very successful
0: i have loved this chat i feel like we've uncovered so many different opportunities so many different types of potential um you've re invigorated or, or reinstated my faith in veganism we haven't hit the peak not even close vegetarianism, flexitarianism, all of it. So I'm really keen actually to see where we go from here. This is really quite exciting. Um, Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much to you guys for for joining me today. The conversation doesn't end here. Head over to Mintel's LinkedIn to let us know what you think or visit mintel.com to become a member of our free spotlight community. Make sure you subscribe to Mintel Little Conversation wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. And if you could rate us or leave us a review, we would very much appreciate it. We hope you'll join us for our next episode of Little Conversation, but goodbye for now.